0: I want you to imagine with me for a moment that on tomorrow morning you're on your way driving into work and um, it just seems like there's something in the air. Something seems to be off and wrong. Maybe an overly aggressive teenager cuts you off in the roundabout. Um, you start to get text messages from people saying things like, Did you hear the news? And, Can you believe it? So you finally get to your office and you open up your email to check your work for the day, and you find that a friend, of their, a friend of yours has forwarded an email to you with the title of it simply being Parking Solution. It's a forward that has just gone out to the entirety of the Old Miss community. You have to have had your head sort of stuck in the ground if you haven't noticed that when the students all come back, uh, parking gets a little bit difficult on the square. Well, you can imagine what it's like on campus trying to find parking. But guess what? We now have officially found a solution. But as you read through the email, it's almost as if you've got to catch your breath at what you're reading. Because what Chancellor Boyce's solution to the parking problem at Old Miss is simply this. He has obtained adequate funding to put together a parking garage dead in the center of campus where the grove is. Absolutely. He's finally found what he's going to do. The grove is going to be torn down to make way for a beautiful, it's going to be red and blue uh, facility, with with as much parking in it as the university can recruit freshmen. Now, set aside for just a moment your initial uh, revulsion at the simple idea, and fast forward to a few hours later. Let's say you head to the square for a bite of lunch with a friend, and as you are making your way to the restaurant, you meet another friend from church on the way to the restaurant. At which point they stop you, and they look, and they're like, ah, you know, I don't think I've ever been less motivated to start a Monday than today. And you respond, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you hear about what happened this morning and what's going on on campus? And before you can explain, your friend chimes in and says something to the effect of like, oh, don't even start. I am so tired of all of the campus politics and student drama in this place, I don't even really have the energy to listen to it. Freeze that moment right there in your mind for a second. How are you making sense of that conversation in that moment? Here's one thing I think that you probably definitely know. You know that no matter whether you're happy for this new new solution or whether you are horrified at the loss of the grove, by the end of tomorrow night, you would be hard-pressed to find anyone in the state of Mississippi who did not have an opinion on what just got announced. (laughs) State fans notwithstanding, right? People will have an opinion about this. Second question, what exactly is going on with your friend who you're having a conversation with? You would have to assume, on the one hand, maybe they just haven't heard they're not engaged in the question, and so, so the, if they're not acknowledging the bigness of it, maybe they're just unaware of it. But the second thing is, it might be that your friend's sort of boredom with what goes on on campus, what they call student politics, is itself the very thing that's keeping them from listening to the big news. You suddenly realize that your friend's symptom is their very disease because the reason that they're bored is because they won't hear the big news. Okay, you may not think that illustration is psychologically believable, but that's okay. Because I've I've been trying over this last season of sort of diving into the book of Romans to try to quantify sort of my own experience of being in Oxford for the last 23 years. And, And I think in reflection, I've come to believe that Christianity in our community, I think, holds a similar spot in our imagination to City Hall on the Square. is as good as I can come up with. City Hall, you know, it's, it's kind of a big deal, but mostly because it takes up so much space downtown. You're glad it's there, and they can certainly help you in a pinch, but it only gets visited when it's absolutely necessary. And when you're there, you know, you feel pretty good about your participation and access to city officials, but it really doesn't do much after you hit the door and you, eg- and you exit. In other words, I've come to be concerned, at least in my own life, that Christianity is leading us to be very ordinary here. Southern folk writer Flannery O'Connor would describe the South as being (laughs) Christ-haunted. By which she means that faith, Christianity in general, is just commonplace here. And when it gets commonplace, it becomes predictable and trite. You can't, of course, ignore it by any stretch because it's everywhere, but the constancy of it almost makes it as if it's mundane. Matters of faith are a matter of course, as it were. And so I've got a premise that I want to explore with you this semester, and it's simply this one, that the further you dive into the Bible, the less able you are to take its message casually. In other words, does it ever strike you as odd that the people who first heard this message about Christianity had had amazingly different reactions? On the one hand, they would absolutely leave everything else in life and devote their entirety of their life to this message, even to the point of death, or they tried to kill you if you talked about it. (laughs) What you don't find in the Bible is people hearing the Christian message and saying to themselves, oh. Well, neat. <laughs> That's not the reaction that you get from people, why? Okay, look, put yourself back on the square with your friend that you're passing. <laughs> you would almost certainly breathlessly blurt out, don't you, don't you understand? They're gonna tear down the grove and put on a parking garage. Don't you understand what's happening? To which my guess is your friend would say something like, wait, what? Hold on, hold on. Start from the beginning which is exactly what I want to do this semester. In other words, Christianity is only as ordinary as our avoidance of it will allow us to be. I submit to you that once you begin to get curious and you begin to look into this this most basic architecture of the Christian message, you will find something that is radically terrifying, but radically transformational, and in the end, radically comforting as well. And I believe that that is Paul's intention in the book of Romans, especially laid out for us in verses 1 through 17, because he's giving us a foundational structure for the gospel, this news that he's bringing. And therefore it becomes sort of a lens through which you can understand even the entirety of the Bible. It's just that important of a book. So what I want to do is I want to break down the message of this, this opening thing in one simple sentence that'll have three points. Paul has big news that he's not ashamed of about how to be on God's good side. Three things, big news, not ashamed, and being on God's good side. First of all, let's look at this first idea the big news. Look at what Paul's doing in verses 1 through 6. 1 through 6 is a very typical opening to an ancient Near Eastern letter where the author is going to give you a bit of his own self-understanding. And simply stated in verse 1, he says, An apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Paul is saying, if you want to know my identity, you've got to see it in its association with this thing that we call the gospel. The word gospel is actually a Greek word. You've probably heard this before. The word euangelion, it's made up of two words. The prefix eu simply means good. When you go to a funeral and you hear a eulogy, that's saying a good word about the deceased, right? The second part of the word, though, angelon, is the word from which we get the word Angel. Which I know when we think of angels, we think of like wings and white people or whatever. But the word actually for Paul had a very different association. It simply meant to him a messenger or a herald. It's very difficult for us in the internet age to remember this, but there was a time in which the only way in which you had access to public in, in, uh, information was through these messengers, these heralds. That is, whenever there was like a a huge thing that happened, a great great victory in battle, let's say, or maybe some change in leadership from the emperor uh, or some kind of civic life change, it was announced in the streets by the angeloi, the angels, the heralds, these messengers, who simply brought news that something had happened. Then in verses 8 through 15, Paul says, I have an intense interest in visiting these, these people Paul is anxious to get to Rome. I cannot wait to be there to, as he says, impart some spiritual gift to you. He says he prays about it all the time in verses 9 and 10. And then in verses 13 and 14, he immediately starts talking about this fact that this gospel is for everybody. Would have tickled the ears of the Jewish people right out of the gate, by the way, to hear him include the Gentiles as part of that group. But then he goes on to say, it's even Greeks and barbarians. It's even the the, the wise and the foolish. Now, look, I think this is absolutely a fascinating study because Paul's opening is telling us that what he cares about very deeply are two things. Two things, which in many ways I think become the very two themes that are what the whole book of the Bible, the whole book of Romans, are about. Number one is this the first theme is how can sinful people be made right with a holy God? purely by his grace through faith. That's the first theme. The second theme, though, is this question of what it means to be the people of God. And Paul is saying it's completely changed, especially from where the inertia of your heart is going to take you. Those are the two themes. And in many ways, it's the overarching announcement that Paul wants to deliver to these Roman ears. Now, Before we go to unpack that in my second point, pause on this for a second because I mentioned this back in our study in Acts, but it bears repeating here. Paul is here to deliver important news. He is not here to deliver what we might call important advice. But in many ways, what happens oftentimes in religion itself is that we turn the message of the gospel into simple advice. But that's different from news. And you can use it by comparing it to really every other world religion. You don't want to be involved in another world religion? Here's what you do. You want to be a Muslim? Here are the five principles. You want to be a Buddhist? Here's the path. But only in Christianity does it talk about something that has happened. An historical event in the past has happened that has to be listened to just like tearing down the grove to put up a parking garage. Other religions are there giving you advice on how to be fulfilled, how to live your best life, how to be wealthy, or how to raise, I don't know, well-adjusted, non-embarrassing children or something like that. I don't know. But in Christianity, we're not here to bring advice. We're bringing news. It's an announcement. And I really don't. I want to push on this for a second because I don't think that there's anything that makes Christianity more ordinary than a gospel of good advice. You know, for a lot of us, we look at our faith as as if it's nothing but a, a personal self-help program. I mean, maybe for you, you picked Eastern meditation, but I chose Scripture. I chose Christianity. because that was true for me. That is not the Christian message at all. Because I think that what happens is is when you grow up, especially in southern Christianity, there's a sense in which we relate to a form of Christian teaching that in many ways is primarily about us. The Bible's teaching is primarily about us and about what we have to do and about how we have the responsibility to keep the relationship between us and God healthy. Am I the only one who picked up that message? Honestly, we heard good things, but we didn't hear good news. And for that reason, faith remains very inert. It's easily avoidable. Maybe sometimes you feel badly because you don't pray like you should have, but I'm working on it, maybe we say. Now look, what we see though in verses 1 through 15 is Paul is obsessed. And it's not just because he's religious like that. That's not the reason. It's because he heard news. (laughs) Powerful news, the the content of which set him on an entirely different different trajectory of life. So the takeaway from this first point is the fact of the gospel, the fact of this news. The second thing we need to look at, though, is what is the content of the news? Which brings me to the second point about the fact that Paul is not ashamed. It's good news that he's not ashamed of. Look, it's worth highlighting in whatever electronic or whatever version of the Bible you have with you. Everyone agrees that verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1 is the theme of the entire book. You need to know this. And Paul begins unpacking that theme by saying that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Now, this is kind of important. There's a a pastor, James Stewart, uh, who uh, preaches in Edinburgh, uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, who in a sermon one time said this. He says, There's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you felt the temptation to be ashamed in the past. Does that make sense? In other words, Paul wouldn't say that he wasn't ashamed unless there was a temptation to feel that way. Or maybe it sometimes was ashamed. makes a pretty interesting, I don't know, like a a spiritual diagnostic, how to test myself. You'll know you've heard the real Christian gospel when you start to feel a temptation to be ashamed of it. Don't let that unnerve you at the very beginning because it means you're probably hearing the true thing and not some some, uh, unreasonable facsimile of it. So the question then is like, well, what in the world would Paul have had to be ashamed of when it comes to this gospel? (laughs) That's a good question. and I think there's at least two things we could say. First is, remember, go back to the themes of Romans. The first theme of Romans was how sinners can be justified in the eyes of a holy God. So the first reason why you might be ashamed is because the gospel is going to challenge your own perception of yourself. That's where it's going to start. As you truly take on this radical news of Jesus, you're going to find yourself having to admit things about yourself um, that honestly are somewhat unflattering. Because when you go through them and you see them, you realize they spell nothing but helplessness on your part. That is, the gospel is going to first push you to admit that regardless of all of my fussing and all of my moving around, I'm not enough. Like capital E, enough. And when it comes down to it, I can no longer console myself with this idea that um, I really am a good person deep down. The gospel's gonna challenge that and say, or not. <laughs> You're not a good person deep down the further you go. And the reason why I feel like we've gotta work on this is because we live in a town who prides itself on its, I don't know, Hallmark movie like appearances, do we not? And the inertia, I think, of this town is always pushing us to put on a good face, Uh, report to everybody just how great it is to live in our precious little town. We love it. And I'm I'm chief among them. I'm not condemning anybody in this room. But please hear me. What that means is, is that the alignment of Oxford, Mississippi is pulling you away from what the gospel is trying to get you to admit about yourself. And I don't think we're being responsible citizens until we own this. We are going to be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel if we follow the inertia of Oxford, Mississippi. We're going to talk about our faith as if it's, you know, helpful. (laughs) I'll attend a Bible study, but you know, from a safe detachment. Um, I'll avoid confessing my sins to those around me, like the Bible commands me to do, in the interest of making sure that I at least have the appearance of being together, right? What's happening? You're being ashamed. It's shameful to admit those things. The second theme running through the book of Romans is about what Paul means by the people of God. See, because before Jesus shows up, to be the people of God was primarily a racial uh, thing. You were Jewish. It was an ethnic thing. And there were all these cultural practices that had been built up around being a Jewish person, that for that, that's what it meant to be the people of God, meaning you were, you were special, you were singled out, you were privileged, we might say in our day. <laughs> but look, follow Paul's logic, because if the gospel is pushing you to admit things about yourself as accurate, then the gospel is only going to be received by grace alone. And if it is only received by grace alone, it means that it's got to be for everybody so guess what, Jewish person, it ain't just about you. It's also about those Gentiles who are so easy to despise. Hey, guess what? slave? It's not just for the privileged and the wealthy. It's for you too. Guess what? Even for men and for women, there are no differences anymore at the feet of the gospel. Everyone comes in by the exact same means. There is no put <clears throat> it this way. There is no more equalizing factor. In the world operating than the Christian gospel to level people on exactly the same plane, which is absolutely tremendous, by the way, because it cuts across the inertia of this town. Bear with me for a second. I realize that for many of us, we were schooled in Mississippi. I was from Memphis, same thing there. That had very sophisticated, unpublished laws about who constituted those that were in, right? And those who were out. And, and, and we're the ones with the good theology and the right stuff, but were we not exposed in the 1960s when evangelicals in mass opposed the civil rights movement? Now, you may want to have a conversation about, oh, you don't understand the blah, 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 context, blah, blah, blah. I know, I know. But an instinct to want to bring people together, should that not be shared by any person who proclaims the gospel? We then we went to Old Miss, did we not? And of course, we turned what should have been the innocent fun of a Greek fraternity and/or sorority uh, if membership into a, a badge of pride. More so than that, a badge of exclusion of other folks, <laughs> especially those that weren't, you know, the measure up to whatever standards we have of cool or cute. She's so cute. <laughs> or I'm telling you, hey, he's a stand-up guy, man. Stand-up guy. Look, my point is, when you spend much time in that mindset, accepting a gospel based purely on grace is going to force you to reinterpret how you define in and how you define out. And you know what you're going to be tempted to do? You're going to be tempted to be ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. Look, any psychiatrist will tell you that when an addict, especially, especially like an alcoholic, when an addict uh, sort of begins the process of breaking through their addiction, oftentimes when they return home, they're met by opposition from their healthy spouse. AA began to notice years ago that that marriages would oftentimes break apart after one of the the spouses would get healthy. You want to know why? Because the other non-alcoholic spouse had gotten to where they were enabling the other one's behavior. And when the person came home healthy, They didn't like it, and they divorced because they didn't know how to navigate through it. My point is, our marriage to the city of Oxford (laughs) may be enabling us from being able to hear the good news in a way that keeps it from being ordinary. That's what we're suggesting. So Paul says he's not ashamed. And then thirdly and finally, and I'll finish with this, it's about how to get on God's good side. (laughs) Um, When I grew up, this was where the sermon ended, by the way. You know, we would stand up and say something to the effect of like, now look, God does not want you to be ashamed. Paul's not ashamed. I, the preacher, am not ashamed. You shouldn't be ashamed either. Y'all, let's pray. And then we would finish the sermon. But that's not the deal here. Look, what Paul is saying is, is that the gospel is not a morality tale, but it's encapsulated there in verse 17. Paul says, look, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is worth looking at carefully. It's very easy, I think, to read that phrase righteousness of God as if it's God's character trait of being righteous. God's holy. He's perfect. He does everything right. We ought to be righteous too. (laughs) No, that's good advice. That's not good news. So no, Paul is talking about righteousness in the sense of being right with someone. Let me illustrate. Let's say that you are, are, are living in your home because you received a loan from a mortgage lender. Every month you've got to write a check or do an electronic draft, whatever, to be in good stead with the bank. Right? If you fail to write that check, you are not good with your bank. You're on the bank's bad side. In other words, you're not not living up to what it requires to be there. Look, here's my question. When Paul says the righteousness of God, he he means the quality of being right with God. I'm on God's good side. What a great question to ask yourself this morning. Do I assume myself to be on the good side of God's intentionality right now? And if the answer to that is yes, why do you assume that? Because the inertia of my heart is pulling that to talk about my performance. But what I think we find in, in, universal in people's heart is they suspect that. This is universal in people's heart. They're suspicious of that question. When I moved to Oxford in 1999, there was a, there was a song that was always on the radio in that summer. Uh, it's kind of a one-hit wonder by a band. Um, what was the name of the band? The, the New Radicals. And the song was called, You Only Get What You Give. What a positive message for a title of a song, right? It's kind of a funny song. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek, a little ironic and sarcastic, but there's a hilarious line in the middle of it because it's about a person who has everything going against them. They feel like the world is against them, but they're trying to keep a good face on it anyway. And midway through the song, it says, hey, we're flat broke, but hey, we do it with style. And he throws in this line, but God's flying in for your trial. (laughs) You ever felt that way? You know, I feel like the world is against me. Oh, and now we find out that God himself is flying in a special, who knows everything, to testify against me. I really do think what that artist is is reflecting there is this universal sense of a gnawing ache of guilt inside of us, that I'm on the wrong side of the universe. And here's my point, that we rarely make this connection, that as long as that guilt goes undealt with, You have planted and nurtured the seeds of ordinary Christianity. It's the guilt that will do that. Why? Because performance-driven religion is exhausting. The more loaded down you are with soulless obligation to your work, the less likely you are to be interested in it at all. Look, if I assume myself to be in good stead with God, and that righteousness, that rightness between me and him, is dependent on my work, I'm not going to be at that work very long. Certainly not very well. That's my premise. How do we deal with that sense? God has flown in for my trial. Which is why I said that I think in Oxford we treat Christianity like we do City Hall. You know, I'll go when I have to, when I'm mad about, you know, my life is how my life is going. When I feel like, you know, the one in charge has let me down. But of course, otherwise it'll only occupy the most peripheral parts of my life. This is my premise this semester. Ordinary Christianity will always spring from works righteousness, from a mental frame that is still preoccupied by your performance. Because what that does is is it keeps Jesus on the periphery. You want to know why? Because as long as Jesus is on the periphery, he's manageable. And when someone is manageable, they become an object. And when something is an object, it is ordinary. All because of works righteousness. Um, I had a friend who told me a story. Here's my question before I end this story. My question is, what is different about the way the gospel is going to deal with that? Good question. We're going to talk about it all semester long. But I had a friend who was telling me a story about a comedian who did a bit during a, a show, um, who was talking about when he was in college and he took a class called Computers and Networking. And he said he sat in the first class and had zero idea what anyone was talking about. So he decided, you know what, I'm just not going back to class. And he didn't go for the entirety of the semester. Didn't tell his parents, didn't do anything. But somewhere in the last week of class, he starts to feel pangs of guilt for having (laughs) never attended this class. So he decides to go on the last day of class to see if maybe he could salvage something, you know, at the end and maybe take the final Well, he walks into class and he sits down. And as soon as he sits down, the guy sitting next to him goes, "Hey, do you think that the professor is going to give our final back today graded?" And he was like, "What? (laughs) He missed the whole final. He missed it. So he's literally in despair this entire class. So he goes to the professor's office and he walks and he tells him his plight. And by the way, he totally lies." He lies to his professor, be like, oh, I was confused. I know what's going on. I just didn't have the right day. You know what? Can I take the exam to try to get some kind of grade? And the professor looks at him, strangely enough, and says, No, I tell you what I'll do, though. I will give you the same grade that the worst person in the class gets. And the guy was like, uh, Okay. Does that mean that I get a zero? And he goes, Actually, no. He goes, The worst grade in the class was a guy who just barely passed. You just barely passed. <laughs> Now look, I realize that I've just triggered every teacher in the room. That's wrong. You can't do that. But if you get upset at that, you're starting to hear. Because what the gospel says is, look, this is the problem. And we're going to talk about this at length. We think that the Bible and the gospel is about pardon for sin. It's part of it. But see, pardon for sin just means that you, that you don't get punished for missing the exam. What Paul finds out the gospel means is, is that I got a grade that I didn't deserve. And when something inside of me churns, when I hear people getting what they don't deserve, when I hear people getting things that they don't deserve, and that makes me angry, I am against the spirit of the gospel. And I'm leaning into works righteousness. And when I'm doing that, Christianity is fast on its way to becoming ordinary. And mundane and boring. Let me ask you this question in closing and put it in theological terms. What if this rightness with God is not something that is achieved but is revealed? What if the gospel and the change that brings in your life is not what it changes in you but what it changes about you? That it's a change in your status first. Now, here's my hope. My hope is that you've got 1,000 questions at this time. And my invitation for you is that you come back and dive into Romans with us this spring. We're going to, take this, we're going to do this great sort of flyover of it and hopefully inspire you to dig through it because there's more here than we could do in a lifetime of study in Romans. So come back and dive into it with us. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace to take joy in this study, to learn from it, And somehow in the midst of it, see peace and joy and love that only comes from you. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.